0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife's Oral Board Review Series. My name is Patrick Georgioff, and I'm joined today uh, by Ben Jacobs. Ben and I did general surgery residency together at the University of Michigan. And Ben is now completing his vascular surgery fellowship at Dartmouth. And Ben actually just took his oral boards today. Uh, today, So who better to walk us through vascular oral board scenarios than Ben? Uh, than ben. ben, do you want to say hi?
1: Hey. Hey, everybody.
0: Great. So uh, today we're going to do, like I mentioned, all things vascular. Uh, so let's start with... Arterial disease. The the score uh, diseases and conditions that constitute the core curriculum include acute thrombosis and ischemia, cerebrovascular disease, compartment syndromes, diabetic foot infections, peripheral arterial emboli, and peripheral vascular occlusive disease. Of note, uh, aortic dissection, aortic aneurysms, uh, those are both considered advanced topics. Core operations and procedures. Include a lower extremity amputations, uh, arterial embolectomy and thrombectomy, and lower extremity bypass. Uh, of note, here carotid endarterectomy and AAA repair are both considered advanced procedures. All right, Ben. so Let's get started with. Yeah. Uh, what am I doing here? Let's get started with PAD. How about that? Uh, yeah. So. For peripheral arterial disease, you want to recognize some key findings and kind of put these people into different bins. Uh, these patients will present either with intermittent claudic- claudication or lifestyle limiting claudication or critical limb ischemia with rest pain and or tissue loss. So, again, uh, claudication symptoms, critical limb ischemia with rest pain, tissue loss. Those are three key features of peripheral arterial disease. And we want to definitely differentiate uh, peripheral arterial disease from acute limb ischemia, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So, regards to presentation, these patients often present uh, uh, in similar fashion. So, they're smokers, typically diabetics. They may have a cardiac history, and uh, if they have lifestyle limiting claudication, they're going to have cramping or burning pain in a lower extremity that reliably occurs with activity and it's relieved by rest. And uh, the pain occurs in muscles that are just distal to the level of the stenosis or the obstruction. Patients with rest pain will have just that. They'll have pain in their muscles at rest. So, Ben, when you, uh, work these patients up, if you were to get this patient on the oral boards, uh, how would you, what kind of history would you ask for specifically?
1: So, I think the, the things that we want to know, um, you know, you want to, I, you want to determine whether the patient is a clodicant or whether they have critical limb ischemia. And so critical limb ischemia would be rest pain and or tissue loss. Um, and that's an important distinction because uh, we'll get, talk about this a little bit later, but the, the treatment for those can be slightly different. Um, so the first thing that you want to know is if the patient's clearly a claudicant and they have pain when walking, you want to know how far can they walk? Um, is it worsening over time? Um, you know, important thing to include probably in your, in your history in that case is what does the patient do for a living if they're a mailman? then lifestyle limiting is different than if they were work at a desk job or something. It's worth knowing. Um, you know, the the characteristics of rest pain are usually pretty typical. It's pain uh, in the forefoot, sort of over the metatarsal heads, which is, you know, typically at night when they hang the foot off the bed. Those are the things you're looking for. And the tissue loss should be evident. Um, you know, the other thing that every vascular surgery patient is a, you know, has coronary artery disease, right. But, uh, we assume. And so all those things as well that you want to talk about and you want to assess their cardiovascular health. And importantly, it's important to remember that these patients don't, uh, they might not be, they might, it might be that they can't walk far enough to stress their heart enough to get angina, but you want to try to expose those kinds of risk, uh, uh, factors as well. And then the other things, whether they're actively smoking or smoking history, things like that. Um, you know, it's, it's probably worth keeping in the back of your mind, at least other things that can be similar to claudication that are worth, uh, you know, teasing out in some cases, like neurogenic claudication. Uh, you know, the, the sort of the minutiae of which are not that important because they're probably going to give you a claudicant on the boards, I would think. Um, what about, um, physical exam findings? Patrick, what do you think?
0: Yeah, so we're going to do a full kind of vascular style exam. We're going to listen to the carotids. We're going to perform a full pulse exam. This is super, super important. You want to assess the inflow and the outflow. You want to assess manually and uh, if you can't feel pulses, uh, certainly with Penn Doppler. Uh, and you uh, want to assess for the limb temperature, uh, perform a full neuromuscular assessment as well. Uh, people with a bad or patients with a poor blood flow are going to have leg atrophy. They'll have that shiny skin and lack of hair. And uh, certainly a tissue loss, you want to be able to better understand what kind of tissue loss you're getting on the exam um, and whether or not bones involved, how extensive is it, etc. So, uh, Ben, you get a patient who's clearly a uh, You do your full exam and you're going to work them up. What are the, What's the standard vascular workup?
1: Um, so the, you know, the first thing I think in all these patients that we're going to start with is an, uh, ankle brachial index. Um, that's, uh, in almost all cases going to be where we're going to go first. Um, that can give you some clues. Uh, you know, if they give you enough detail, they probably will just give you a number, uh, and tell you that the ankle brachial index is four. Um, you know, um, the next thing that I think is would probably not be unreasonable is to ask for a duplex. So I think, um, uh, the reality is that a CTA is in almost all cases going to be the ne- the next study after a dupe, an uh, ABI that we do. Um, it's important to remember though that, uh, CTAs are not great for, um, runoff, meaning you may see what you think looks like three vessel runoff in the, foot, but that's it's in reality those vessels are crappy and they're not any good. Um and so uh an arteriogram would be the correct the preferable study to look at the the foot vasculature. Um you know one way to think about it and I, I don't think it's this hard and fast, but is uh think about your femoral pulses. Um patient without femoral pulses has inflow disease, CTA patient with femoral pulses has outflow or runoff disease arteriogram. I think it would, probably right. not be, it would probably not be too unreasonable to think about it like that on the boards, though I think nobody would fault you for saying that you'd start with a CTA.
0: All right. Now, you mentioned ABI of 4. Did you mean
1: 0.4? Yeah, that's what I meant.
0: Okay. Now, and again, just for the listeners, well, anything less than 0.9 is abnormal. So anything less than that... Um, uh, abnormal. Um, how about for tissue loss, Ben? How are you going to work those people up if you you note that they have tissue loss on exam?
1: Yeah, um, you know, tissue loss is, um, it, tissue loss is usually going to be pretty evident to you. And I think the couple of things that you're going to want to know is um, the first thing I think on the boards that you're going to want to make sure that you're differentiating is between wet and dry gangrene. You know, infected, uh, wet gangrene. Um, can be a surgical emergency. Um, if they give you dry, you know, dry gangrene or if they give you something to, you know, a, an ulcer on the plantar surface of the foot, like a diabetic foot ulcer, um, it's probably not unreasonable on the boards to order an x-ray or an MRI to assess for osteomyelitis. I think sure. ESR and CRP, um, would both be other things that you can look for. You know, and on your physical exam, you can ask, like, does it probe to bone? Uh, probably would be a, a, a question that you could ask. And yeah, I think, do, you
0: assume, do you assume they have osteo if it does probe to bone? The answer is yes, right?
1: The answer is yes. Yeah. I mean, okay. if the bone is exposed to air, it's osteo, uh, I think, by definition. Um, uh, and the last thing, you know, is um, TCPO2 is what, so transcutaneous oxygen pressure, um, you know, will give you a, a good idea of where they'll heal and so you know whether they would heal uh, a knee amputation or above knee or a transmetatarsal amputation which i think are probably by the way we'll get to this but the only three amputations you should do on the port
0: yeah so, so that, an oxygen less than 40 right would be uh something you'd worry would not heal so if the oxygen tension is greater than 40 millimeters of mercury uh that would su- be more suggestive of being able to heal at that level correct
1: yeah, so and if they give you if, you know, if they say the the tcpo2 at the distal calf is 60 then you can maybe infer you can you can infer from that that they're telling you that the patient would heal a below-knee amputation. Okay. All right. So in regards
0: to treatment, the majority of peripheral, peripheral arterial disease uh, it, the treatment is determined by the Transatlantic Inner Society consensus, consensus for the Management of Peripheral Arterial Disease, or TASK—that is a mouthful. Uh, but that stuff's super complicated. I think Ben probably knows it, but for the general surgeon, uh, probably beyond our scope of interest. So, so we'll stick to some kind of core concepts of treatment. So, number one, does the patient have metaf- modifiable risk factors? If they're smoking. Let's have them quit smoking. Let's try to improve their diabetes uh, as much as we can. Treat their hypertension. Get them on a statin. The next thing is, if they are a without rest without tissue loss or rest pain, uh, we're going to want to get them on a supervised walking program. And this, uh, for the v- majority of patients, medicine, medical management and, and supervised walking uh, are going to get them through uh, without a surgery, at least at that initial Presentation and there are some medicines. Uh, uh, pentoxophylline or cilostazol is a medicine that can help improve uh, claudication uh, symptoms.
1: And then, okay. uh, go ahead, man. in For a second here, Patrick and say, I think it's important to remember the the difference between claudication and lifestyle limiting claudication. I think, and so yeah, okay, I don't think I think if on the boards they gave you a guy who claudicated after. Uh, you know, 150 yards, who was still smoking, who had an A1C of eight. I don't think it would be on, I I think I wouldn't rush and say like, oh, I I would take the guy to the operating room, I'd do a bypass. I I think it would be very reasonable to say something to the effect of, you know, smoking cessation, walking program, aspirin, high dose statin, and I'd see him again in six months. And you could be, I mean, you could potentially even do that a couple times, rather than rush straight to saying to the, examiner you know i want to do a bypass on the guy um if if the claudication present history they give you is like the guy can walk 10 feet um you know so use your judgment with the 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 situation that they give you on the boards but i think it would probably be the safest answer if they give you a straightforward claudicant to say that you'd give them a chance with medical management before you operate him
0: right and then inevitably you're going to say that and then you'll have him come back and then maybe they will send them away again. But inevitably, they're going to come back on the on the boards and say, "Okay, it's not working, or it's gotten worse, or whatever." At right. which point, you can talk about your, your revascularization and management. Yeah. So, to that end, uh, one of the core uh, procedures is a lower extremity bypass. So, uh, Ben, why don't you walk us through uh, how would you how you would describe that? Uh, well, first, how about some some kind of key considerations for the bypass, and then how you would describe it in in a board scenario.
1: Yeah, I think the things, um, you know, you want to think with any, uh, with any bypass that you're sort of thinking about and how to answer it on the boards, you're thinking about your inflow and your outflow and, and your conduit. Um, and you're thinking about what, you know, where this blockage is and, and what you're trying to go around. Um, the, uh, I think the on the boards, one of, one thing that you're always going to want to know, you're going to want to ask for vein mapping pre-op if you're thinking about, uh, maybe get, doing a bypass on the patient um, and you want to use the ipsilateral great saphenous vein. Um, if they gave you, which I would be, I mean, it would be kind of mean, but if they gave you a guy who had no vein in his legs, you could ask for arm vein mapping. Um, and then uh, PTFE, if they, gave, if they told you the guys had, a, a, you know, cabbage and a redo cabbage and all this stuff and he has no pain, then I think PTFE would be the next thing that you're going to want to say. Um, now ben,
0: what is the, what's the vein diameter on venous mapping that you need?
1: Yeah, how you want to vein have? Have a, a minimum of three millimeters is yeah. what you're going to want to see. So if and and you want to know too that you have enough length. So if if you're doing a fem to the floor bypass and the guy has you know only a you know twelve centimeters of usable vein, that's not going to work, right? So you're going to need to know um, how to get all the way down to whatever it is you're bypassing to. Um, and so, you know, if they give you that situation and you're using plastic, um, you know, it, it would probably be if they, if you got that far, you're probably doing pretty well in the question I would imagine, but they, uh, um, you could, you could offer up a vein cuff or, you know, some of those other types of things. Um, you know, the inflow and outflow exposure for your bypass are going to be, um, you know sort of these cutdowns and vascular exposures that we sh- you you sh- you know from your studying for your trauma uh uh part of the test too, which um is a uh cutdown directly on the common femoral artery and um fr- uh exposing the inguinal ligament is the first part of that uh operation right so you're going to make your incision you're going to dissect down you're going to find the inguinal ligament and then you're going to find uh your common femoral artery next and you're going to expose it sort of proximal to distal. Um, you're going to want to say that you're going to get control of the profunda by exclusion. You're going to have, uh, loops around the, uh, superficial femoral artery, the common femoral artery and the, or you could say the distal external iliac because it's probably more accurate. And then the circumflex, uh, and any other small branches. Um, the, uh, another important thing that, a detail that you probably want to include is how you're going to handle the vein. So if you're using ipsilateral great sapness vein, you probably ought to tell them that you're going to reverse it. Um, uh, and you could say something to the effect of as long as there wasn't a great size mismatch or something to that effect. And if they do tell you there's a great size mismatch, then you want to say the word valvulatome, right? You're going to, you're going to have to have some way to deal with those valves. Um, and then if you're, you know, if they give you a baloney pop, for instance, we know that exposure. Um, and it's a it's a medial incision, uh, finger breath or two posterior to the tibia and you uh, dissect down through remove, get the soleus off the back of the bone and you're going to expose it there. And that's the same exposure that you would use for the, um, you know, the tibia peroneal trunk is just the same exposure, just a little further distal you're going to always want to say that you're heparinizing before clamping. And, um, you could
0: What's the, uh, tell me, uh, tell me what do what you, what are you going to say? Yeah. So uh, 80 units per kg and it just say 10,000, 5,000. What do you,
1: I, you know, I think the math is easier if you say a hundred units per kilogram. And so, um, though I think it's 80, right. But, um, so, you just try to ballpark it, right? If they give you, if they tell you the patient's 70 kilograms and you're trying to do the math and it, you know, say 6,000 a heparin, right? Um, sure. I would just try to ballpark it. And I would tell, you know, the other detail that I would include and make sure that you're telling them is like, I would shoot for an ACT of, uh, greater than 200 or greater than 250. Um, and I would serially measure those every 20 minutes throughout my operation would, you know, if you were being, if you wanted to be careful to, to make sure that they knew you were worried about the heparin. Sure. Um, and then, you know, you're going to sew your anastomosis in the, um, in the way that we sew all of these, right? So it's a, going to be an end to side. You're going to spatulate the vein. Um, it's going to be five O or six O proximal six O or seven O distal. And then the last thing you're going to want to do is a pulse exam. And you're going to, to check your Doppler both in your graft and then distal to it. You know, if you they do, An angiogram, you think? I wouldn't, you know, in, in, I wouldn't, if they asked me, are you going to do a completion angiogram? I would, my answer would probably be if I had a good concern signal, I wouldn't. If I had concern for some reason, yes. And if they give you something like a complication where they say, like, well, now you, you know, you're closing up the groin incision and now the signal is gone in the foot. I think not unreasonable in that case to say that then, then I would do an on-table angrier. Okay. But I wouldn't do it routinely. I don't, I, I wouldn't answer that, that question that way.
0: Okay. All right. Well, um, let's talk about uh baloney amputation with a, uh, a posterior flap. So to do this, we're going to take the tibia 10 centimeters from the tibial, uh, tibial tuberosity, and we're going to, start our skin incision 12 centimeters distal. So I would start my description of the procedure by saying that I would draw out skin incision 12 centimeters distal to the tibial tuberosity. I'd carry that around posteriorly, and then I'd create a posterior skin flap encompassing approximately half of the total leg circumference. I would then divide the soft tissue surrounding the tibia and fibula with uh, electrocautery. Um, I would then uh, divide the tibia two centimeters proximal to my skin incision and my fibula even shorter than the tibia. I would uh, bevel the edges of the bone to ensure that uh, they aren't uh, sharp. I would ligate the AT, the PT, and the perineal vessels and associated nerves as they uh, uh, become apparent. Uh, suture ligate those. And I would uh, complete the posterior dissection with a amputation knife and perform a multi-layer closure of the posterior flap with healthy healthy gastroc muscle covering uh, the the entire defect and I'd close that in multiple layers uh, with absorbable Vicryl and sutures uh, or excuse me staples on the outside.
1: Yeah, and Pam, um, how how, about, how short do we want to make the fibula compared to the tibia? How much shorter?
0: Yeah, I was I would say two centimeters uh, shorter, uh, one to two centimeters shorter. Yeah. Is that appropriate?
1: I think that yeah, that's what the textbook says, right? And if you if you shorten it too much, you end up with a conical stump, and it's they don't uh, they don't uh, use. Um, prosthetics well so yeah i think you want to you want to make sure to be specific about that when you say that um and then you know the next one would be the above knee amputation and i think the this is um almost anything that you describe i think would be uh uh would probably work in real life but i think what you want to say is you want a fish mouth incision um we your uh probably what i would say is four finger breaths above the patella and then your bone cut is two above that and um <clears throat> we're and so the point of your fish mouth incision is at the point where you divide the bone you divide all the soft tissues ligate the sfa and uh and close just like you described patrick for the baloney amputation bringing the fascia together with uh, absorbable vicrols and then closing um skin over top great Great.
0: All right. Uh, I think that wraps it up for uh, peripheral arterial disease. Let's move on to acute arterial thrombosis and ischemia uh, with or without compartment syndrome. So these are similar patients as well. Typical. They uh, the presentation is t- uh, similar. They're smokers, diabetic, have a cardiac history. But these guys present with uh, guys or gals present with a pulseless uh, extremity. And so uh, for history taking, you want to understand all their cardiovascular risk when. If they had any history of arrhythmia, for example, or prior strokes, uh, and also at what time did this occur? How long did they uh, ago, did they notice this pain uh, or their symptoms? And so, Ben, how about exam? What are you going to focus on on the physical exam?
1: Uh, So this is not, right? This is not too much different from our um, other. uh, We're going to perform a full uh, pulse exam. Uh, and you're going to assess both in your history and your physical exam for, we all remember from medical school, right? The six Ps, pulses, paresthesia, paralysis, poiklothermia, pain, and pallor. Poiklothermia meaning coldness. Um, you know, I think it's important when you're thinking about these, in the, both in the history and the physical, it's probably worth knowing for the board's um, um, classification of acute limb ischemia. So what would be 1, uh, 2A, uh, threatened, uh, and to to be immediately threatened, and three, uh, a moribund limb, uh, and I won't belabor this because partly because this table is a, a little complicated, but profound paralysis, an anesthetic limb is a, is dead, and it ain't coming back to life. Uh, and so it's important to recognize. I think it's worth knowing that, but we won't sort of break down that table because there's a lot in there. But it's you should Google it. Um. And then, so the workup uh, after that is going to be partly driven by how acute the uh, patient is. But an ABI, if you have time, I think a CTA would be very uh, would not be unreasonable if you felt that you had time. Um, but Patrick, what, so as we go through our workup, what are we going to do to treat these people?
0: Yeah, to start off, the non-surgical treatment includes getting them an aspirin asap, uh, getting them on a heparin drip with a bolus up front, and you know, if if the presentation warrants it or if your diagnostics suggest it, uh, that they have true um, uh, arterial thrombosis or obstruction, these patients go immediately to the operating room. And again, one of the core procedures on, on the SCORE curriculum is an embolectomy. So, Ben, how would you perform an embolectomy in a patient who has uh, sudden onset pulses lower extremity?
1: Yeah, so we're going to expose the... Um, whichever vessel that it is, if we're, you know, if, uh, you're going to expose the common femoral artery in the way that we usually expose it, we talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, you're going to get proximal and distal control in the way that we do. Um, it's important that you've had your patient on a heparin infusion right in the emergency department, wheeling them upstairs to pack you, but you're going to still heparinize intraoperatively, um, in the same way that Patrick and I described earlier. Um, you're going to make a transverse arteriotomy, and um, you're going to use your Fogarty embolectomy uh, balloon catheters, both proximally and distally. So don't forget to tell them that you want to do it proximally. You're going to go from the common femoral artery up into that external and and common iliac artery with, uh, you know, number five Fogarty balloon or four. Um, And then you're going to thrombectomize distally. And you want to verify, right, when you've done this, that you get good back bleeding And one, I think, thing that's probably important to voice out loud on the boards is that you want one clean pass, right? You want one time your Fogarty goes in and comes back out with nothing, no clot, nothing attached to it, and just bright red blood coming back at you. Um, Sure. And then I think, you know, if they gave you a situation where they said, you know, well, you do that and you still don't have signals in the foot, then then you're going to move down the leg, right? So and expose the next vessel down, whether that's the pop uh below knee pop and then do a tibial thrombectomy would be your next thing, I think. And then I um, you know, they're they're I think often gonna give you a situation where you're uh you're at that line probably of whether the patient needs prophylactic fasciotomies or not. Um so Patrick, why don't you walk us through how to do those?
0: Yeah. So so if prophylactic fasciotomies if once you hit four hours, especially in the exam, you're going to, you're going to likely do it. I mean, real life and, and on the exam. Uh, but let's say it's not a situation where there's acute limb ischemia per se, or there's some, something else going on, a crush injury or whatever. Uh, it's also worth probably talking about compartment pressures. Uh, now the diagnosis of compartment syndrome is a, is a clinical diagnosis. And so, uh, first and foremost, we want to make, uh, assess that patient. They'll typically have pain out of proportion to exam, pain with passive flexion, et cetera. They may or may not have a very tight feeling compartment, but, uh, compartment pressures can be measured. Uh, a compartment pressure greater than 30 millimeters of mercury is suggestive of compartment syndrome or a delta of a great, of less than 30, meaning the diastolic blood pressure minus your compartment pressure also suggestive of compartment syndrome. But again, this is a clinical diagnosis in the circumstances we're talking about here where it's acute limb ischemia, and once you've hit that, you know, close to that four-hour mark or that four-hour mark, you're going to go ahead and perform prophylactic fasciotomies. And so there are four compartments in the lower extremities and you reach those with two incisions. Uh, so the medial incision is is one finger breadth behind the tibia. Uh, the lateral incision one finger breadth anterior to the fibula. And from your uh, medial uh, incision, you're going to have access to the posterior superficial and deep compartments. It's important uh, to note that to get to the posterior deep compartment, you have to take the soleus down off of the tibia to top to properly decompress it. In regards to the lateral incision, uh, this gives you exposure to the anterior and lateral compartments. You want to identify the intermuscular septum between these two compartments and you want to perform make an H incision that crosses that septum to ensure that you're uh, you're getting into both uh, compartments before taking your fascial incisions up and down. And one thing where they might catch you, you, you want to note that you're not going to extend your your lateral fasciatomy incision past the head of the fibula, as this is where the common uh, perineal nerve crosses and, and could be injured. And typically, you don't uh, you don't close these wounds. You're going to uh, typically place a wound vac.
1: So, Patrick, when uh, you know, it, let's say you know you're on the exam and you you forgot or whatever to do, say you just didn't say it, and the the examiner wants to communicate to you that the patient's developing compartment syndrome. You know, up on the floor after their operation, what are they going to tell you to make that you should recognize that that's what they're saying is that you forgot to do fasciotomies and you ought to do them now.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the patient symptoms, pain, uh, uh, out of proportion to pain on exam, um, pain when you're stretching that that muscle. Um, what else? One of those things. What do you I think? I like
1: that uh, the other th- the thing to ask about would be um, pain on passive flexion, I think is the other thing. And then the six Ps that we talked about before.
0: Sure. Okay. I was trying to say pain on passive flexion. I couldn't find the right words to say it. So good. Good. All right. Let's go to carotid disease. Uh, ben, how are these patients presenting?
1: So these are, um, you know, these patients are going to probably come in three uh, ways. They're going to be asymptomatic, they're going to have a TIA, um, or they're going to have had a stroke. Um, and they may, on the boards, I su- give you a patient who's got, who's asymptomatic, but, you know, referred from a PCP with a brewery. Um And these patients are going to work up the way that we work up all our vascular patients, which is assessed cardiovascular risk factors. Um, current treatment and, you know, you want to define the nature of their symptoms, uh, or lack thereof. So the amaurosis, fugax, uh, that curtain coming down over the eye, um, weakness on the same side. Um, the, uh, the ocular exam has, uh, this, the, you know, we, the Holland-Horst plaques. Um, remember what it's called. And, um, uh, facial droop, these kinds of things that we know. Um, it's important to do. Uh, you know, probably I'd say that I would listen to a brewery, though I don't think I've ever actually done so in real life. Maybe I should be. I'm not. Have you ever, Patrick? Oh, I don't have a stethoscope. <laughs> uh, I lost mine in October of intern year. Um, right. And uh, and a full neurological exam uh, would be the end of my. You know that that those are the things that you want to know in your history and your physical. What about? Uh, how how after that, Patrick, would you work these guys up?
0: Yeah. And so uh, it's definitely cir- uh, uh, centers on an ultrasound or duplex. And a lot of times the patients will present to you. They'll be referred by a PCP who got a duplex because they heard a brewery. And then they'll present to your office and you go from there. And the duplex gives you uh, two pieces of information. One is the percent stenosis based on the, the B-mode imaging. Uh, and... Also, uh, from the Doppler portion of it, you get different velocities and the, the key velocities are the peak systolic velocity and the end diastolic velocity. Um, and you can also have a ratio of the, uh, ICA to CCA ratio, but the two key ones are the uh, PSV and the EDV. Um, and, and you can get a CTA. And so a CTA is probably warranted if you need to assess for where that plaque is actually located, if it's a distal plaque, if it's getting up into the skull base, or if you have any other concerns about anatomy that's not answered by your uh, ultrasound, you can, you are fine to go ahead with a CTA. Now, for these patients in regards to treatment, we want to get them to quit smoking, get them on an aspirin, a statin, beta blocker, diabetes treatments as needed. And if they present with a prior TIA or stroke, uh, I would include a stroke workup in that, including an EKG and a TTE with a bubble study. Now, I mentioned uh, at the the top of the show here that the uh, carotid me actually kind of surprising to me is not a core, a core uh, operation or procedure according to the score curriculum. So we're not going to go through that in detail, but we are going to talk about some of the key uh, considerations uh, for performing a carotid me Ben, you want to take that?
1: Yeah. So the, I think the real, the most important thing here is to recognize what the, uh, indications are for when, you know, we classify patients either as asymptomatic or symptomatic and uh, who gets an operation, who doesn't. And, you know, there is there is some controversy there. It's, uh, you know, 50% greater than 50% uh, symptomatic and greater than 70% asymptomatic or 80% asymptomatic. I think are probably both accurate answers. Uh, you know, the, they, I don't know if they'll give you, uh, velocities on the boards, um, but what, you know, what we would use, I think most people would use is velocity criteria, and that's what the SVS recommends is greater than 200, a peak systolic velocity greater than 230 centimeters per second, and end diastolic velocity greater than 100 centimeters per second, um, or a ratio of the ICA to the CCA velocities, um, greater than four, um, whether or not they give you that on the boards, I, I don't know. Um, but that's what kind of what we use. If they just give you a percentage, um, you know, 50 to 60 or 70 to 80 uh, would be your numbers. Um, you know, the the probably there's going to be a podcast where they're going to talk about neck trauma and they'll describe exposing a carotid artery. It's rough, roughly the same thing. I think one thing to remember in this, if you do get this on the boards, is the question of shunting. Um and I think whether you said that you would shunt or use EEG or measure stump pressures, um, and the stump pressure number that you would want is greater than 50. Uh, I think those are all okay. I think as l- you just be prepared to justify the reason and remember that on the boards, the, what's the safest way? The safest way is to do it awake. Um, uh, that would be the, the board answer for the safest way to do a carotid endorectomy uh, is to do it awake. Uh, and then I think probably it's worth mentioning that you would do a completion duplex at the end of the operation as well. Uh, that's become, I think, standard of care. Um, carotid stenting, I would be shocked if they would ask you about it. Um, but, I th- you know, you could offer it as an option in a patient with a, a prior neck radiation Uh, history of surgery, uh, prior surgery on the neck or prior carotid uh, uh, endarterectomy uh, or in a patient who's too ill to undergo if if you thought they couldn't undergo a carotid endarterectomy, though I'd be shocked if they asked you for more detail than that.
0: Okay, so for a patient who, uh, so for the boards, uh, when it comes to percent stenosis, we're going to say greater than 70 and asymptomatic, they're getting a CEA. Greater than 50 and symptomatic, they're getting a CEA. Or if We're talking about velocities, a peak systolic velocity greater than 230 centimeters per second or an end diastolic velocity greater than 100 meters per, or centimeters per second. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what are some uh, – I can think of two probably real common complications that might come up after a CEA, maybe a post-op stroke or neck hematoma. Um, yeah. I, how would you manage that neck hematoma? I
1: expect it, But I mean, if they give you this on the boards, I would expect one or the other of those to come up. Um I think the, import, the, the important thing, if they give you a patient, they say, okay, you get a page two hours later from PACU um, that the patient has uh, an expanding hematoma on the right side of his neck and um, is stridorous, for instance, right? That's easy to understand what we need to do. We need to I- intubate the patient and then take them to the operating room. And the important thing to realize is uh, what what do you not do? Open the neck, right? You open the neck. This is not a, you know, different from a thyroid patient, uh, uh, where you might open the neck at the bedside. The answer in a carotid patient, um, is, uh, that you do control the airway, open the neck in the operating room in a controlled setting, because worst case scenario, right, it's a patch blow. Um, post operative stroke, uh, if they got you, if they gave you, uh, one of those on the, I think that the answer, if the, if the stroke is happening in you. Um, take the patient to the OR. Uh, you know, you could say I would get an ultrasound if it wouldn't delay me. But I think it's real important that, that to understand that those patients go back to the operating room right away. Um, so I think those two things and that, you know, they may or may not ask you about cranial nerve injuries um, worth reviewing um, the different cranial nerves uh, that are in danger in that exposure, the hypoglossal, the glossopharyngeal and the vagus. Uh, worth reviewing that as well, but we won't belabor that point today.
0: All right. So that wraps up the arterial portion. Uh, let's talk about venous uh, venous disease. And so the SCORE curriculum lists core diseases and conditions as evaluation of a swollen leg, thrombophlebitis, varicose veins, venous stasis or chronic venous insufficiency, and venous thromboembolism. Core procedures are venal uh, venocable filter insertion, interestingly enough. And, uh, operation, venous insufficiency and varicose veins. Uh, we'll also talk about in this section, venous access. Uh, so one of the core diseases and conditions listed here are vascular access for dialysis, whereas the core operations and procedures include arterial venous graft or fistula formation, a uh, vascular exposure principles, whatever that means, and venous access device insertion. So, uh, let's get started with with DVT. Uh, these patients are going present with a swollen, painful leg. You want to ask about risk factors, including recent immobility, surgeries, um, if they have cancer, IBD, if they've had recent trauma. Do they have a personal or family history of clotting? Uh, one thing you might want to consider is May-Thurner syndrome, which is a left-sided clot due to left common uh, iliac vein compression by the right common iliac artery. And, uh, on exam, we're going to want to rule out cellulitis or necrotizing infections, other things that might also cause leg swelling. Uh, Ben, how are you going to work these patients up?
1: Um, so I think the other thing you probably, you want to make sure that you mention your physical exam is that you're going to feel for pulses. You want, you don't want to miss, um, uh, what do you call it? phlegmasia? Uh, though that, note it's very unusual in real life. Um, you know, the first thing that we're going to do for these patients is a duplex. Um, the, an acute clot won't compress, um, and it'll tell you the Doppler flows will tell you a, a partial versus a complete occlusion is probably how they'll describe that one, I would guess. Uh, <clears throat> and then um, your treatment for these patients is going to involve um, anticoagulation, right? That's going to be uh, the whether that's a heparin drip or low-molecular weight heparin. Um, and then you want to remember that you're going to um, early ambulation and compression uh, are now the standard of care. The concern that we're gonna toothpaste a clot out of the vein and up into the lung, uh, we know that's not um, a real risk anymore. And so early ambulation uh, and compression, Um, we can, when you start that patient on a heparin drip or low molecular weight heparin, you can um, uh, discuss transitioning them to either warfarin, Or to one of the novel oral anticoagulants. Um, the, uh, and it's going to be a minimum of three months. Um, and, uh, it's now it's three months in everybody. Um, there's no real unprovoked and provoked anymore. So I I think saying three months in everybody, uh, is probably safe. Um, Patrick, what are we going to do if the patient can't be anticoagulated?
0: Yeah, We're going to go ahead and place an IVC filter. Uh, If the patient uh, has severe disease, a very, very severe disease, uh, and uh, you need to do something, you can talk about catheter-directed thrombolysis or mechanical thrombolysis or even open surgery. Uh, And if if it is something like a May-Thurner syndrome, as I mentioned before, this would warrant uh, placing a venous stent. Now, two of the other interesting kind of conditions, uh, core conditions are phlebitis and thrombo thrombophlebitis. Ben, you want to talk about those?
1: Um, yeah, these are uh, so superficial thrombophlebitis. Um, you know, you're going to have a patient with uh, a hot kind of um, cord redness of the skin, um, whether on the arm or probably more likely on the leg. Um, the the treatment for that is going to be warm compresses and NSAIDs. Uh, there is, there are situations in which, um, we'll anticoagulate for these if it's on the leg and it is within, um, uh, I think within five centimeters of the saphenofemoral femoral junction or five, and it, if it's five centimeters in length or seven centimeters in length, I think is the right one. But, uh, I wouldn't worry too much about that. I would remember NSAIDs and, um, warm compresses, um, supertive thrombophilitis. Um, you know, this is the, this superficial uh, thrombophilitis that is now infected. Um, you're going to want to get blood cultures. You're going to want to start, uh, four weeks of antibiotics and, um, uh, Broad, you know, broad spectrum probably narrow them down. And Patrick, I honestly can't remember if you're supposed to cut these things out or not and remove the clot. I I seem to recall that you are, but it's been a while since I've read that chapter.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I didn't know you had to do that. So I, don't, I can't if, remember. Feel compelled? I can go look it yeah. up. I, I know. Um, okay, good. I, I that that's good to cover that in case that comes up. How about varicose veins? Uh, if the patient uh, comes, we got to get a thorough history from them. Uh, Things like have they had a prior DVT or prior vein harvest for any reason or any other vein procedures? Have uh, they had trauma to the area? Are they currently pregnant? Uh, these are all risk factors for development of varicose veins. Uh, we're going to perform a thorough physical exam. And as Ben mentioned before, we're never going to forget the, to check arterial, the arterial side of things and make sure we look, at, look for all pulses. And we will um, assess to see if the patient has any venous insufficiency uh, wounds or venous insufficiency ulcers or if this is just plain varicose veins. Um how about a workup Ben for for varicose veins?
1: Um so this again is going to be uh ultrasound. Um and so these specifically you're going to get a, a venous reflux study. Um or um uh insufficiency testing would uh, be the other way to sort of put it um an abi i think and arterial duplex are very reasonable if you have any concern at all for concomitant um arterial disease particularly i think in a patient with wounds um uh in addition to varicose veins, if they also had you know venous stasis ulcers i think getting um arterial studies would be reasonable as well um and then we when when we're thinking about treating these patients its um compression is first and 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 i think the most important thing you know, elevation, compression, exercise. Um, you're gonna want. I, I think it'd be reasonable if you have a patient just with varicose veins on the, um, on the exam. Uh, I think it'd be reasonable to describe giving them a trial of compression and saying, you know, I, I'd have them come back and see me in three or six months, um, if. At which, like you said earlier, Patrick, they will inevitably come back a come back or they'll probably more likely they would give you like the doc. I just got to have something done about this. Um, so then you're thinking about your um, uh, surgical options. So one would be um, uh, ligation of the saphenofemoral junction would be an option um, with stab phlebectomies uh, to remove the varicosities themselves. Um Sclerotherapy or laser therapy of the uh, great saphenous vein or glue, um, I, I guess if you were super comfortable with those things, maybe mentioned on the boards. But I think the one that I would go with would be the um, uh, GSV RFA, so radiofrequency ablation of the great saphenous vein. Um, and, you know, the, I think the important thing that you want to do here is you want to make sure that you are uh, sufficiently away from the saphenofemoral junction when you're uh, starting your radiofrequency ablation. So you want to be three centimeters away. Um, and the follow-up for these patients, if they ask you how you're going to follow them up, is going to be within one to two weeks, you're going to get a, um, a duplex ultrasound to make sure that they haven't developed a, a DVT. Uh, because you, by definition, you've given them a superficial vein clot, right, that has the possibility of extending. And um, the other thing to remember is that if they have, if, you know, you do all these things and they get, they tell you the patient keeps coming back with this non-healing wound, um, getting a full thickness biopsy.
0: Yeah, good point. And I want to go back and mention, you talked about getting a venous uh, insufficiency testing. So the numbers for that are if you have reversed flow that's greater than 500 milliseconds for superficial veins, or reverse flow that lasts for greater than 1,000 milliseconds in deep veins. That'd be a positive study that would be consistent with venous insufficiency.
1: Yes, thank you, Patrick, for reminding me. I totally spaced on mentioning that. Um well, let's, it was do, let's do let's do, let's,
0: do, let's do hemodialysis. Yeah. So uh, hemodialysis in general, once a patient's GFR gets below 30, you want to start the discussion, and then typically the nephrologist will be doing this. They'll start the discussion about dialysis. Once they get hit 20, a GFR of less than 20, that's when uh, they're likely going to be seeing you. Uh, that's when you want to start uh, planning and, and, and go for making your, your access for that patient. And typically, once the GFR hits 10 or below, uh, these patients are started on hemodialysis. And when the patient comes to your office, if this is a question you're given, you want to ask about prior, anything that can cause a, a venous stenosis. So talk about prior central lines or surgeries related to the veins and the arms. Um, and you want to perform a physical, a full physical exam, pulses, and uh, uh, you could even perform an Allen's test uh, uh, to assess for uh, appropriate radial and ulnar flow to the hand. And when we work these patients up, we're going to do upper extremity arterial and venous ultrasound. Uh, we want to assess for venous, uh, or excuse me, assess for vessel diameter and and or the presence of stenosis throughout the arm. And we also want to get segmental arterial pressures to assess for uh, any inflow issues as well. And so the numbers to remember that your vein needs to be greater than three millimeters in diameter. Again, vein greater than three millimeters in diameter. And your artery has to be greater than two millimeters in diameter to be considered uh, for use in arteriovenous fistula formation. So Ben, why don't you walk us through, in, in order of preference, the types of AV as you can create. And, and ideally, we, d- we use the non-dominant arm. Uh, but let's walk us through, the, in order of preference, how we can make go about the AV fistula formation.
1: Yeah, I think this is, um, you know, I, I try to make this as simple as I can. And I think that it's, um, I always think of distal to proximal, right? So um, if the patient has, uh, and you want to start with the non-dominant arm first, right? So if, if you have a right-handed patient with uh whose ultrasound looks perfect, you can start with a left-sided uh radiocephalic fistula and then work your way up. Um so uh, you know, that's how I think about sort of so the semino radio cephalic in the wrist, brachiocephalic, and then uh you're thinking maybe after that about a basilic vein transposition. Um and then you know the last thing you you're doing is going to the groins um uh, or to other uh, options. Um, the uh, are these core procedures, Patrick? Do we have to know how to describe these?
0: Uh, the core procedures: arteriovenous graft and fistula. Yeah. So, why don't you tell us how? Amino procedure, just ever so quickly, just tell us how yeah, you do that. Yeah, these
1: are, these are simple, uh, honestly. And if, if somebody asked you and you had never read a book and you just had some basic surgical and vascular surgery knowledge, you could probably figure it out. Um, you know, you're going to make – you, you want to pr- always describe that you're going to map out the course of the va- vasculature preoperatively, immediately pre-op with the ultrasound. You're going to prep circumferentially. Um, you're going to make a 6-millimeter arteriotomy and make a side-to-side radiocephalic anastomosis um and lagate the vein distally. Um the brachiocephalic the um exposure is gonna be at the anticubital fossa. You're gonna again you're gonna map out your vessels with ultrasound and a transverse incision there, like I said, at the anticubital fossa um you're going to dissect your artery and vein and you know you all, you're going to say the same stuff you always do for vascular operations right proximal distal control etc um and you're going to swing that cephalic vein over um and make a anastomosis And the uh, basilic vein transposition is very similar operation but done through a, a incision on the medial side of the arm to expose those vessels um remember that the basilic vein transposition is a two stage operation in most people right so that you make your vascular anastomosis, wait for the thing to mature, and then you're going to have to go back in and superficialize that um, for the of uh, the bacillic vein transposition. Sorry. Um, uh, would you, are you going to
0: describe on the exam, would you get, talk about giving heparin to these patients? Oh
1: yeah. I would. Sorry. Thank you, Patrick. I would, you know, we would heparinize them and I would say in the same, you know, the same fashion that we talked about earlier, Something like 80 to 100, whatever makes the math easiest when you're sitting there stressed out. You you know, if they uh, do some quick math in your head and give somewhere between five and 10,000 a heparin, yeah.
0: Perfect. All right. So we're going to follow these patients up and come back to clinic. We'll get uh, some additional uh, ultrasound imaging. And we know that they're ready for, for access when uh, they meet the rules of sixes. So the rule of sixes includes that the graft is uh, six millimeters in diameter at least. That it's uh, six millimeters or less below the skin, and that flow is greater than 600 mls per minute. So again, greater than six millimeters in diameter, less than six centimeter, or excuse me, millimeters below the skin, and flow greater than 600 mls per minute. So there are a couple complications that might come up on the boards related to AV fistula formation. That could include a steel syndrome. Um, This may manifest or probably most commonly manifest as uh, issues during hemodialysis itself. There are two main ways to treat it, or three main ways, really. You could just take the fistula down if it's a serious issue. Uh, you could do uh, some degree of banding or suture ligation in which you partially uh, um, ligate the venous outflow to narrow that some. Uh, but there's also something called the DRILL procedure, which stands for distal revascularization and interval ligation. So I'm going to attempt to describe this. So uh, what you essentially are going to do here is create an arterial bypass with a vein graft. Um, over and across your anastomosis and you're going to ligate your artery just distal to your original anastomosis uh, but proximal to where you plugged in that new graft uh, and this should improve flow to the distal arm. Ben, what if uh, there are absolutely no good vein options and you have to think about uh, creating a, a, a loop uh, or using PTFE or something similar, a graft?
1: Um Yeah, this is, these are kind of, if you get that far, you know, these are kind of last ditch options. Um, with, you know, you're going to want to use ringed, uh, PTFE and uh, in the forearm, uh, to your, uh, anastomosing to your basilic or cephalic veins, um, and in the upper arm, uh, you're going to, you know, you'll tunnel that loop, uh, of PTFE, uh, across the upper arm from the brachial artery to the cephalic, um, vein proximally, uh, up sort of where it's, um, dumping in and getting large enough to accept that anastomosis. um and then the you know that's important to realize that's two separate incisions okay
0: all right good all right that wraps that up now I, we're going to cover two topics additional topics really quick and this is technically under a different section not the vascular section but uh let's talk about mesenteric uh, ischemia acute and chronic and then also colonic ischemia so starting with mesenteric ischemia or acute mesenteric ischemia specifically, this can be a result of embolism or thrombosis. And, uh, or I guess for occlusive acute mesenteric ischemia, this can be a result of embolism or thrombosis. And so embolism is most common, typically in the setting of AFib or a recent MI, the emboli tend to lodge in the SMA just distal to the takeoff of the middle colic uh, artery. And this results in ischemia to the small bowel ascending colon. And these patients present with pain out of proportion to exam. They often have uh, signs of uh, uh, compromised bowel, including elevated white count and lactate. We diagnose with a CTA that should show uh, this uh, occlusion and or the compromised bowel. And treatment is an X-lap with a thrombectomy and resection of any non-viable bowel uh oftentimes this would be a stage procedure with a second look where you'd come back and re-examine the bowel. Uh these patients should be heparinites, they should be on a heparin drip post op. And these are high mortality operations. This is these are not good situations. And so consideration for end-of-life uh discussion should uh, may need to be brought up on the boards as well. So Ben, uh, how do you uh, for an open operation, how do you expose the SMA and and it? So when we um
1: when you're thinking about an embolic source, you know, they're they're probably going to give you something like, and they're going to say the there's an abrupt cutoff of contrast several centimeters distal to the takeoff of the SMA. And so um, you will expose your SMA by lifting up the transverse colon. You reflect the small bowel to the right, and you're going to follow the middle colic artery through that transverse colonic mesentery uh, down to the level of the SMA. That's how you're going to locate it. When it is pulseless. And so you, um, you, you're going to find that middle colic in the transverse colonic mesentery and follow it down to the SMA. Um, you're going to obtain proximal and distal control, uh, just like we always do of the SMA. And, um, you're, you're going to, at that time, you're going to heparinize the patient. Um, the, probably the easiest answer is to say that you're going to make a transverse arteriotomy. Um, and then, uh, pass your Fogarty embolectomy catheters, um, one clean pass and you want to see nice, brisk, bright red back bleeding. Um, and you're going to close with interrupted 6-0 proline. Uh, if, I like- if they give you a situation where they say, you know, that this is a very small artery or it's very calcified, um, then you, you're going to want to make a longitudinal arteriotomy and you're going to want to patch angioplasty. Don't close it primarily if you make a longitudinal an- arteriotomy.
0: Good point. Good point. All right. So that was acute mesenteric ischemia from embolism. And how about thrombosis? So uh, typically, these patients have a history of vascular disease, and this could be an acute on chronic presentation uh, where thrombosis, as opposed to embolism, thrombosis tends to occur at the origin of the SMA. So this could be more widespread ischemia without any sparing of the middle colic distribution. And these patients are also going to present with pain out of proportion to exam, uh, but they may also have a history of weight loss, food aversion, or postprandial pain, which would be signs of, of chronic disease. Um, if the bowel is compromised, you have elevated white count lactate. We're going to diagnose with a CTA as well. And, and Ben, similarly, how are you going to, uh, how are you going to treat these guys? You're going to do an X-lab and consideration for bypass or a stent, right?
1: Um, yeah. I, you know, the, In these in these cases, you're going to expose the superior mesenteric artery in the same way that we described, and um, you're going to be thinking about a bypass. And in in this situation, you're going to take your bypass off the iliacs, um, and uh, you're going to want that uh, bypass to come up just to the SMA. And you know, I think if they give you an emergency situation where both the celiac and the SMA are occluded. Um, You're only going to revascularize the one, uh, just the SMA. Um, take that bypass off the uh, external iliac vessel um, uh, up to the SMA that you've exposed in the same way that we described before. Uh, using, I think, reverse saphenous vein um, is probably the right a- answer in the setting of uh, bowel ischemia and bacterial translocation. You want to use an autologous graft, I think, on the boards.
0: Sure. And then quickly non-occlusive disease. So, um non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia clo- occurs in low flow states uh without vascular occlusion. These are these are patients that are in the ICU, they're on pressors, uh, or maybe they got too much diuretic and already have low cardiac output, or maybe even they're on hemodialysis and this pushed them over the edge. And treatment for this is typically not surgical unless there's dead gut. This is treatment is often medical and improving perfusion to the bowel. Uh you could also have mesenteric venous thrombosis. Uh, so thrombosis of the mesenteric veins doesn't have, uh, really a more insidious onset. It may present with ascites. Uh, you'd see thrombus on CT scan, and these patients should be anticoagulated, and only in the, the worst case would you consider surgical resection. Uh, Ben, ever so briefly, let's talk about chronic, uh, mesenteric ischemia.
1: Um, so these ones, if they give it to you, should be straightforward and easy for you. It's going to be, um, food fear, weight loss, postprandial pain um uh and likely in a patient who has a history of vascular disease uh as well and and so they'll give it to you it should be pretty straightforward um i think an ultrasound looking at the velocities uh is n- probably not unreasonable to ask for but i, I think every one of these patients you're going to ask for a cta uh you could probably ask for an angiogram too but i think uh the reality is you're going to want a cta on all these guys um and the uh you know the treatment for these um folks is going to be uh an endovascular operation like uh an angioplasty and stent or an open bypass um and these in the you know the non-emergent setting you can uh you can do a bypass rather than from the iliac you can do a bypass from the aorta down to both bifurcated graft to the celiac and to the SMA to revascularize um Sort of the brief, if they give you one of these, it'll be straightforward like that. Food fear, weight loss, postprandial pain, I would expect. That'd be my expectation. Okay. Great.
0: All right. And the last topic colonic ischemia. So uh, most often these are older patients and they have a history of cardiac or vascular comorbidities. Uh, ben, what are, again, this is differentiating small bowel from colonic ischemia. So what are the causes of colonic ischemia?
1: So colonic ischemia is, um, you know, it's often going to be in a similar patient that we were, t- like, who we were talking about for, um, non-inclusive mesenteric ischemia, uh, somebody who with hypoperfusion. And so, um, uh, we remember those watershed areas. And there's some eponym that I think I heard on behind a knife, uh, <laughs> last, uh, for these two points of watershed areas in the colon. I can't remember. Um, But, you know, low cardiac output, sepsis, hypovolemia, uh, particularly in the setting of, particularly in the setting of pre-existing, uh, atherosclerotic disease or mesenteric vascular disease. Um, I think another one, uh, Patrick, that I think is likely to come up on the boards is, um, a patient, they'll give you, uh, you know, five, six hours after an open abdominal aneurysm repair or after an endovascular repair uh, with uh, a bloody bowel movement. Um, and so that iatrogenic uh, um, cause, I think, would be a common one uh, or maybe a likely one to show up on this kind of thing. Um, you know, thrombosis and embolism are, would be odd uh in in this distribution to cause colonic ischemia not impossible but that's not usually the first thing we think of that would be kind of lower down on my list of uh on the differential what about so how do you guys present patrick what are we thinking about
0: a sudden crampy abdominal pain you mentioned bloody diarrhea they may have urgency and uh, to diagnose these these patients they're gonna have some pain on exam often have pain on exam um uh, signs of compromised bowel with elevated white count and lactate, a CTA, uh, will, sh- uh, will often show poor perfusion to those areas of the colon. Uh, and really the gold standard, though, which is important to, to pack away in your mind, is uh, a sigmoidoscopy or colonoscopy. Okay, those are going to be diagnostic of uh, malperfusion to those areas of the bowel. And the watershed areas you mentioned are the splenic flexure uh, and descending colon and and, and and sigmoid colon are really the most susceptible. And so the treatment for these patients is improving perfusion, uh, uh, fixing any underlying problems and resuscitating these patients. Uh, we want to keep them NPO, start them on antibiotics, try to salvage that colon. Uh, and if that colon dies, then a resection uh, is necessary. So, so that kind of completes our vascular review. Um, I want to mention, you know, we got a lot of great episodes coming up still uh, to cover all the, the core topics for the oral exam. Two areas we're not going to do though are trauma, which, which pains me uh, um, and, and critical care, just because they're so broad and they're really, really, really challenging to put into a podcast format. Um we are, though, going to do a, a dedicated trauma series uh, coming out uh, next right. year uh, where we'll have a number of episodes about uh, 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 important and kind of cutting edge trauma topics. And so I'm looking I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, so, Ben, I, I really appreciate you joining me. It was critical having you on to talk about this vascular yeah. stuff. Uh, again, I can't can't thank. All right, everyone get out there and dominate the day. Thanks for listening. All right.
1: Until next time, dominate the day.